escaped sapiens. It appears that bee populations are in decline worldwide. In 2008 alone, the US saw a 60% reduction in the number of its honeybee hives. So what's happening with the bees? In this episode of the Escape Sapiens podcast, I speak with Dave Goulson, who is a professor of biology at the University of Sussex in the UK. He specializes in the ecology and conservation of insects, and in particular, bumblebees. What unfolds is a fascinating but complex story of the systematic problems facing insect populations worldwide which surprisingly might have some very real and local solutions that you could be involved in. I hope you enjoy hearing what Dave has to say. You've been interested in animals and uh, nature more or less your whole life, and now you're an entomologist uh, focused on bumblebees. Why bumblebees? What, what, what caught your attention initially? Uh, so you're right. I mean, I've been obsessed by nature, wildlife, uh, since I was since I was I don't know five or six years old, and I have no idea why. But uh, but I think it's quite common actually for people to go through a a kind of a bug phase in particular. You know, I, I remember reading that uh, Ed Wilson, the American biologist, he you know he went through says he went through a bug phase and just never grew out of it. And uh, I kind of feel the same. You know, uh, I, but I was I was I wasn't particularly focused on. Um, bumblebees or bees to start with at all when I was a kid I was probably more interested in butterflies and moths and beetles and so on bees didn't really catch my eye till quite a lot later um when I was uh, in my late 20s and uh and I you know I was I was a researcher by that stage um uh, University of Southampton in the south of England but I was I was wasn't, I hadn't really got a research program going. I'd been appointed as a lecturer and I was, I was a little bit lost as to, to trying to kind of get my career going. Um, and, and I was sitting one day in a, in a park watching some bees on a patch of flowers. To, for no, I can't really remember why I was there, but, uh, and I just spotted something that struck me as interesting, which was that, uh, if you, and anyone can see this, in the summer when there are bees around, just watch them in a patch of flowers. And the, the bees, they fly from flower to flower, obviously, but they often fly close to a flower. And at the last second, they, they veer away as if there's something wrong with it. They don't actually touch it. And, uh, and I saw this and I thought, you know, I, I wonder what's, why they do that. What's wrong with the flowers they're skipping? Um, and I actually ended up spending about five years um, studying this. I had a PhD Did you work student. it out? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, but what it boils down to is um, they sniff the flowers um, for the faint whiff of a, of a previous bee's smelly footprint. So when a bee touches a flower, lands on a flower, she accidentally leaves, leaves a little bit of oily hydrocarbon behind. Just like we leave a fingerprint on a glass, we don't do it deliberately and neither does she. But other bees then use that as a signal that the flower has been recently visited and therefore will almost certainly be empty. And there's no point in wasting your time landing. So it just saves them a, you know, half a second or so that they would otherwise waste. But if you do that over and over again, it adds up and uh, I guess helps them be that little bit more efficient as foragers. One of the things that I find most interesting about insects is how complex their behavior is for such small animals. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, I think that's why I, I got hooked on, on bumblebees, um, because, you know, I, um, I actually realized that they are among the more kind of intelligent and complicated of insects. And actually, the, the butterflies and moths that I've been previously kind of fascinated by are pretty stupid in comparison. You know, <laughs> their lives are very simple and their behaviors are, relatively speaking, simple, whereas bees have these really complicated uh, strange social behaviors and they, they have for insects they've got big brains they can learn they can memorize landmarks they can navigate they, they have all really weird complicated social strategies within their colonies and so on so there's just a whole kind of world of interesting stuff going on with them so if they can learn can you train them oh yeah yeah you can train bees um, to for example to respond to particular smells or colors um, the, the most common thing people do is um, train them to stick their tongue out, um, which <laughs> you can associate them to, to associate a particular smell, for example, with a sugar reward. And they learn it very, very quickly. So then you just have to waft the smell over them and they stick their tongue out in the hope that they're going to get a sugary drink. So should I think of them as some uh, really complicated automaton or, 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 they, or should I really think of them as being intelligent? 
And they're, they're, <laughs> there's, a, a, there's a tricky one. I mean, yeah, they are, they, they work on basically kind of simple rules. You know, they, they probably don't sit down and, you know, ponder the meaning of life or, or whatever. Um, but, but, so, nonetheless, they they can they can respond to quite complicated rules. You know, they they're not they're not uh, uh, one dimensional kind of creatures. They you know they can have, exhibit a whole range of responses, uh, and different individuals have different thresholds for for responding in you know to certain stimuli and so on. So it's it's quite complicated to try and understand what's going on. And, and I guess one of the really fascinating things about bees and other social insects is how you know despite being pretty dumb at the end of the day although intelligent for insects they manage to cooperate so effectively and you know their their nests can be enormously successful they are ecologically social insects are among the, the most successful organisms on earth and probably the most numerous organisms on earth but each individual doesn't amount to much but together you know they can achieve amazing things should we think of them as sort of the cells of a larger brain? Like this is sort of the picture that people paint these days. Is, is this a good way of thinking about things or not really? Uh, it, it can be. I mean, yeah, super organ. You know, people talk about the, an ant nest as a super organism. And in some senses it is. And in part because of, you know, the, 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 the evolution of sterile castes that can specialize in particular jobs. They don't have to worry about trying to reproduce like, you know, 99% of organisms on Earth, their, their number one goal is to, is to pass on their genes to the next generation. But if you're a worker bee, then you don't worry about that. Your, your you know, job may be looking after the young or going out to forage to gather food or whatever. Um, so they, they've got division of labor. It's like a human society in, in many respects. You know, instead of carpenters and butchers, they have foragers and nurse bees and guard bees and so on. I wanted to, rather than focus on the amazing things uh, about insects, I, I was hoping to ask you about something that's more sort of terrifying, and that is the in insect apocalypse. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's a subject of much debate. Um, I mean, the, uh, apocalypse is, you know, uh, perhaps too strong a word, but there is certainly something really worrying happening with the insects. They... Um, at least where we have data, and that's a big caveat because there are lots of places where we don't have any data, but in Europe and North America where we do have some long-term monitoring of insect populations, the, the overwhelming pattern is, is negative, you know. And, and some studies show really rapid declines. Um, I mean, perhaps the, the best known was published in 2017 from Germany and uh, uh, it's based on malaise traps, which... which um, capture all flying insects and uh, German entomologists have been putting these traps on nature reserves since the late 1980s and basically they found a 76% drop in the biomass of insects caught per day per trap between 1989 and 2016. Sorry I realize my email is beeping. 76% um, drop in 26 years, that's, you know, that, that's really disturbing. That suggests a, a pace of decline that nobody had previously suspected. You know, we, we knew biodiversity was declining, but nothing like that. Um, in qualitatively, is it just the numbers or, or are we also seeing large numbers of species go entirely extinct? Not yet, no. I mean, that, so far as we know, um, uh, it's very difficult to definitively declare an insect extinct um, because, you know, how, how can you be sure there isn't one somewhere? Um, it's hard enough with rhinos. It's really, really difficult with parasitic wasps that are two millimetres long or whatever. Mm. Um, but so far as we know, there, are, there have not been that many extinctions yet, but there seems to be this massive loss of abundance, uh, which, you know, if it carries on, will, of course, inevitably lead to extinctions mm. eventually. The interesting thing is, you know, you hear about this a lot in the news with respect to bees. And I guess that's because bees are charismatic guys. But so this is far more widespread. It's, it's all into all flying species. Um, so far as we know, it's all species. Um, so the, the, since the German study I mentioned, there's another study came out of Germany actually last year, 2019, which also looked at um, ground-dwelling insects that they captured with pitfall traps. And they found broadly similar trends. In fact, they, they 
they only looked over a 10-year period and found e an even faster rate of decline of woodland and grassland insects. Um, so there's certainly something uh, pretty dramatic happening in the insect world. What about tests outside of Germany? Because uh, I've heard of those tests, but elsewhere is what, what's yeah, going on? Yeah, um, I mean, it's really patchy. So not, not only is it geographically incredibly patchy, you know, we have basically no data at all, no long-term data on insect populations for any species of insect for the entirety of South America, Africa, and almost all of Southeast Asia, you know. So <laughs> that's, that's basically where probably most of the insects live. So that's pretty hopeless, really. Um, almost all the data we have is, is European and North American. And even then, it's taxonomically very patchy. So we, we have monitoring schemes, for example, for butterflies in most European countries and some parts of the United States. Um, butterflies, we probably know more about what's happening with them than anything else. And they're in decline. Um, not 76% in 26 years, but um, in steady decline in, in pretty much every European country and in North America. Sorry, I'm should have took it was most unprofessional. I will just <laughs> for a second. I'll just shut that down. I don't normally get emails at this time of year. Um, <laughs> uh, so, uh, so yeah, we have data for butterflies. We have some moth trapping data. Um, we have some data on what bees are doing, more based on range contractions than actual population estimates. But you know, that's just a kind of uh, the tip of the iceberg with, when you think how many species of insect there are. And we're probably, yeah. we probably have data for, for less than 1% of existing insect species, I would think. I think, well, at least anecdotally, I remember when I was a child driving along in my grandfather's truck with you know, grasshoppers and butterflies spattering all over the window, but that, I haven't seen that sort of a massacre in, in years. Did you also have the sort of, that same sort of experience growing up? Yeah, yeah. Do you mind if I ask, how long ago would that have been? I, I, how old are you roughly? So, so it would have been uh, over 20 years ago. Okay, so I'm kind of surprised actually that it's... Sorry, now the phone's going, one of those days. Um, I'm surprised actually you can remember that because I, I, th I, I would have guessed you might have been slightly too young. I mean, it's, it's the one um, aspect of all of this that people have noticed. You know, most ordinary people don't pay that much attention to insects and, and you know, most of them could disappear and no, nobody would notice. They might notice the consequences, but they, they, they wouldn't notice the lack of insects themselves. But the thing that people do notice is that the windscreens don't get you know, covered in splattered bugs anymore. And, and I think everyone, I would have said, over the age of about 40, can remember a time when, you know, if you went for a summer drive, you had to stop every couple of hours to clean the, the, the windscreen. Um, this might have been because my grandfather was a sheep farmer and he lived in the countryside, though. <laughs> maybe more flies in Australia than uh, many places. Yeah, yeah it could be. Um, but certainly, yeah, absolutely. You know, when I was a kid, well, actually, when I was a, a young adult in my 20s, I used to have a motorbike. And you just, mm -hmm. you know, in the summer, you'd reach a point where you just couldn't see anything at all. And you, you know, the visor would just be completely opaque with, you know, the remains of poor insects that you'd headbutted as you went along. And uh, that just doesn't happen. You long for those days. <laughs> in a sense, yeah. I mean, you know, at the time, it didn't seem like such a great thing. But uh, now it seems really sad that it doesn't happen. So what are the downstream effects? Are we also seeing less birds and predators? Or, uh, you know, are, are we seeing crop failures because we don't have pollinators? What, what, what are the downstream effects that are starting to be measured or seen? Well, so the, the, the certainly seems to be... Uh, a a decline of insect eating birds that seem to be declining at a faster rate than the average for birds. Uh, so particularly um, aerial feeders, things like swallows and swifts, um, and also birds like uh, spotted flycatcher, uh, which as the name suggests, likes to eat flying insects, flies and so on. Uh, cuckoos as well, um, which are specialist caterpillar feeders. Um, all showing really big declines. Um, and the spotted flycatcher in the UK uh, is down 97% since the 1970s. You know, so this is a really massive population collapse. Um, sometimes it's, it's, it's confused by the fact that there also seems to be a tendency for migratory birds to be declining more. 
um, uh, and things like the cuckoo and the spotted flycatcher are migratory. And it may be things happening in their migration routes that are having more impact. But broadly, there seems to be a, a strong pattern that um, insect-eating birds are declining. So that's one aspect, one repercussion of, of insect declines. Um, Pollination is very patchy. Um, there, is, there is growing evidence that the yields of insect-pollinated crops are becoming more unreliable and that that's happening at a noticeably faster rate than the yields of wind-pollinated crops, which obviously don't need insects. Well, they truck around bees, right, to, to pollinate large fields these days. That seems crazy to me. Yeah, I mean, particularly in the United States, it doesn't happen so much in Europe. It does, it does a bit. Um, but in North America, they, they've kind of industrialized honeybee keeping in a way that Europe, thankfully, has never seen. And they, they literally ship millions of hives around the United States to try and keep up with the demand for pollination. And the, the pinch point seems to be the, um, the almond crop in Northern California. And almost every honeybee hive, something like two million hives, are transported to Northern California to pollinate that almond crop. And the, the supply of hives is, is, is getting a bit tight now. And um, so the price that the almond growers have to pay to rent a hive has doubled in the last few years. Um, and if, if, if the number of honeybee hives drops much more, then, you know, it'll reach a point where the almond harvest starts to, to drop. Um, and when that, you bring know, a bunch of uh, bees together like that, does that lead to dis disease spread? Like well, it, would, you'd think horrible? so, wouldn't you? I mean, they, they literally, yeah, I mean, they're ramming in this extraordinary density of, of insects together. They're transported on lorries that might have, you know, two or three hundred hives piled on the back. Uh, and then they're all just offloaded and the doors are opened and they're all milling around together. So for, if you wanted to set up a mechanism for transmitting disease, that'd be a pretty good one. Um, uh, and also, of course, they're exposed to a lot of pesticides on, their, uh, on these crops. And on top of that, they also, these poor bees, it, so the almonds just one stop on a kind of annual tour of North America, which, um, you know, I, I can't remember the exact sequence, but they variously are taken from the almonds to pollinate blueberries in southern Canada. Um, later on in the year, they're doing pumpkins in, in the, the, the um, southern states, and eventually they end up in Florida for the, for the citrus crops, and then back to California again. So they're doing something like 12,000 miles, and, and for maybe a month at a time, they're feeding on just one thing. So, you know, this sounds a bit daft, but if you can imagine that, you know, you were forced to eat chocolate for a month and nothing else. And then the next month you had to eat sardines and the month after that you had to eat turnips. You probably wouldn't be very healthy. Um, and, you know, we can't really be surprised that these honeybees aren't particularly healthy given this weird life they lead, you know, the stress, the disease transmission, the weird diet um, and so on and so on. It's, it's you know, it's, it's a kind of nut system that we've devised. So how did we get here? What, you know, if you go back, I'm guessing if you go back 150 years, we didn't have anything like this problem. So how did we, how did we get from having no problem with pollinators to having to truck them all around the country uh, just to keep our, our industry alive? I, I mean, it, I guess it comes down to the, to the way farming has industrialized. You know, we, we didn't used to grow crops in such enormous fields or enormous patches. You know, there wasn't a patch of almonds in Northern California that covered, I forget how many hundreds of square miles it is, but it's, it's, it's vast. Um, you know, when it was small mixed farms um, with, with small fields, you know, 150 years ago was, was pre-mechanization. So farms were tiny, fields were small. They had a much higher diversity of crops. They weren't using any pesticides. Um, so, you know, each farmer might have a beehive and that would be enough to pollinate his crops and, and you know, those hives didn't need to be transported anywhere. And there were probably enough wild bees and other pollinators to pollinate his crops anyway, so pollination wouldn't have been an issue 150 years ago. Um, but as the human population has grown and we've developed all these technologies, you know, mechanization and um, fertilizers and pesticides and so on, we've we've kind of headed inexorably down this route towards this kind of super intensive farming system. But it doesn't, I, I'm a big critic of the current way we feed the world. I think the, the world's farming system is kind of 
broken. It's staggeringly inefficient and doing huge mm. environmental harm. Um, you know, if you, if you look at it, um, this is a bit of a pet topic of mine, but, uh, you know, right, people think that we need to do all this industrial farming to feed everybody. And the, the human population, of course, has grown and will continue to grow for quite a while yet. We might get up to 10, 11, 12 billion people. Um, uh, and obviously we need to grow enough food to feed everybody. Right now, though, we've, we grow about three times as many calories as we need to feed the, the global population, but we waste a third of the food. And uh, we feed another third, very roughly, to animals, which is just an inefficient way of feeding people. And, and this system of farming is, um, it, it contributes nearly a third of all greenhouse gas emissions, or if you include sort of food transport and everything else. Um, it's damaging the soil, um, you know, we've got staggering soil erosion around the world. Um, I saw an estimate recently that suggested 25 billion tonnes of topsoil lost every year. Um, you know, that's, what's that? It's about three and a half tonnes for every person on the planet. It's, it's just mind-blowing. Um, and, and it's wiping out biodiversity. You know, the biggest single driver of biodiversity loss globally is, is loss of habitat to intensive farming. Um, when you think and, of it in terms of the loss per person, that really puts it in perspective. That's crazy. Three tons per person. Yeah. Every year, year in, year out, you know, it, uh, uh, yeah, it's mind blowing really. Um, and you know, so if we, if we wipe out all the natural enemies of crop pests, we wipe out all the pollinators then, and we've got no soil left, then we won't be able to carry on growing food like this. You know, it's it fundamentally is not sustainable and there are better so ways of doing it. So when you look specifically at the collapse of insect populations, is it, uh, what are the primary factors? Is it loss of habitat or is it pesticides? What's the, you know, do we know what the, the key factor is? It's, it's, there are multiple factors. It sounds like I'm sitting on the, on the fence, but I, I don't think I am. Um, I think most people would probably agree that habitat loss is the single biggest one but usually that's inextricably intertwined with pesticide use because the habitat lost is lost to farmland, which is treated with lots of pesticides. So the two things can't really be separated. Um, I guess also people would say that if you were to get rid of pesticides, then you'd need to increase the land usage. Is that the case or? Yeah, well, on, on the face of it, that would appear to, you know, it, it very simplistically, organic farming yields are a bit lower they're not as low as you might think. Um, I mean, there've been some big kind of global analyses that suggest that organic farming yields are between 80 and 90% of conventional farm yields. It varies a lot according to the crop. Um, I guess when you're thinking in terms of wasting a third and then feeding a third to your animals, that's nothing. Exactly. So, you know, if we were a little more efficient, we could, the world could go organic tomorrow um, and we could comfortably feed everybody. Um, so, yeah, you know, there are other ways of doing things. We're also, we grow too much of the wrong kinds of food, which doesn't help matters. You know, if you look globally, we grow loads of cereals and oil seeds, which provide us with a, a carb and fat rich diet, you know, provides all that processed food, the pasta, the pastry, the pies, the uh, pizzas, cakes, biscuits, all that processed carb that we, we eat too much of, which makes us really unwell. And we've got an epidemic of obesity because of it. On the other hand, we're not growing enough fruit and veg. Um, so, you know, everybody knows fruit and veg is good for you. Um, but even if it was fairly distributed around the world, we just don't actually grow enough fruit and veg for everybody to have a good, healthy diet. So we need to stop growing, you know, staggering areas of wheat and rice and so on and flip some of that into vegetable and fruit production uh, if we want to be healthy, which seems like a good idea to me. I guess there are some commercial forces at play there. It, also, with regards to what you're spraying on your crops uh, that are difficult to control. Uh, yeah, there, well, there, unfortunately, that's part of the problem is there's some strong vested interests in the, in the current system and in insisting that, you know, we, we can't feed everybody without lots of chemicals, um, particularly if you're a company that makes the chemicals, then, uh, you know, uh, you've got a lot to lose from if anyone were to actually listen to someone like me. So, so can I ask specifically about the chemicals? So, you know, after DDT, I thought we'd learned our lesson and, you know, now they test uh, on these chemicals to see that there's no, uh, you know, you're not targeting animals that you didn't intend to target. 
Um, so, so what's, what's, what's the status there? You know, what, yeah. what sort of tests are being done and why are they inadequate? So um, it's, it's absolutely true. You know, I think a lot of people thought after kind of silent spring in 19, was it 63, I think, um, which highlighted the problems created by the organochlorines, DDT and so on, and the organophosphates as well, which were another kind of the first generation of insecticides. And most of those were eventually banned and people thought the problem was solved. And, and I think conservationists took their eye off the ball and moved away to look at other issues. Um, and in the meantime, the, the you know, pesticides were being, new pesticides were being developed to replace those old ones. Um, and it wasn't really until the neonicotinoid kind of um, issue arose in the late 1990s. And uh, So what did those, sorry, what, what did they do? So there's a, there's a group of insecticides, neonicotinoids, which are nicotine der derivatives, basically, um, uh, that, that were introduced in the mid 90s and became the insecticide of choice for farmers everywhere in the world. Um, uh, but in 2018, they were banned by the European Union um, because, well, as they, it turns out they have a whole raft of properties that made them much more dangerous than anyone had realized. Um, Beyond insects? Or... No, primarily to insects and things that eat insects. But um, I mean, essentially, they're incredibly poisonous um, to insect life, uh, to all insect life. Um, and are they stable so, in the environment? Well, yeah. So this is this is this is the second problem. So so um, these neonicotinoids—they're about seven thousand times more toxic to insects than DDT, for example. So. Um, they're, they're, they're ne uh, nerve agents, they attack the brain of the insects and they block the acetylcholine receptors. Um, and it, takes, it takes four billionths of a gram to give a, an eld a lethal dose to a honeybee, for example. So just to put that in context, you know, one teaspoon of this stuff is enough to give a lethal dose to one and a quarter billion honeybees. Um, How many honeybees are there? <laughs> in the world, well, yeah, uh, there wouldn't be any if they were all exposed to, to this stuff. Um, I th at any one time, about three trillion at a very crude guesstimate. Um, okay, so we can make enough chemicals to wipe them out then? Oh, yeah, yeah. If you could get it to them all, you, you could comfortably get rid of them with just a, a few kilos, I should think. I'll, I'll have to do yeah. the calculations later. Um, okay, so that's, that's absolutely terrifying. But but sorry, go su on. <laughs> super potent, and they last for years when they get into soil. They're water-soluble, so they get into rivers. And the way they act is they're, they're normally... Uh, they're systemic in the crop. They're often used as a seed dressing. So the farmer just buys pre-treated, pre-coated seed and sows it in the ground. And the, the, being water soluble, they, the, the coating dissolves in the damp soil. And then in theory, it's absorbed by the roots of the crop and it protects the whole crop. It spreads throughout its tissues. And that sounds like a pretty cool system if you're a farmer. But it means that any other plant with its root in those soils can also suck them up. So you end up with hedgerow plants and wildflowers growing on arable land, all being full of neurotoxins. And then we eat this stuff. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, thankfully, they're, these, they're, they're considerably less toxic to vertebrates than they are to invertebrates. Mm -hmm. About weight for weight, about a thousand times less toxic. Um, but we have also a biome, right, inside our gut. Does it affect that or? No, although other pesticides do. Um, uh, so, for example, glyphosate, which is the best-selling pesticide in the world, uh, herbicide, um, it's, it's been discovered that that uh, uh, is quite toxic to bacteria and uh, affects our gut biome and, and that of bees, actually, and uh, makes them more susceptible to disease when they're exposed to what is on the face of it a seemingly a, a relatively harmless compound. It's, it's not directly toxic, but it has these long-term deleterious effects. Anyway, so the problem basically is we, we keep making the same mistakes. And if you look at the history of pesticide use, there's been, you know, one after, after another group of pesticides is introduced. And then after 20 or 30 years, it's banned because it takes about that long to work out how much harm it's doing in the environment. And then but it's just replaced by something else. But, you know, the thing I'm confused by is don't you do a study where you subject some insects to you know, these chemicals and see whether they are, what, what, what's happening yeah, on that end? Well, where's the ball being dropped? 
there's too many areas where, where it's very difficult to, we, we're not very really good at anticipating all the possible risks. So for example, with these neonicotinoids, well, so there's a number of problems. One is that the standard test is that you get your chemical and you feed it to some test organisms like honeybees in the lab. And if they're not dead within 48 hours, it's all is fine, off you go. Um, but there's a lot of states between dead and alive. Right? Well, exactly. But, the, but the, the sort of simple tests don't look at any of that. And, and even to this day, none of the tests look, for example, at sublethal impacts on health. Um, so your, your bee may, I mean, to take it to its extreme, the bee may be unable to actually fly, let alone navigate across the landscape and bring back food. And one of, one of the interesting aspects of these neonicotinoids being neurotoxins is that they impair the learning and navigational abilities of bees. But you won't see that in your lab study where you're poisoning the bees. All you see is, is it alive or is it dead? Um, so you miss out on that complexity. It also wasn't realized that these things were as persistent as they were and were going to get into wildflowers um, and therefore start exposing bees through routes that hadn't been anticipated. And then on top of that, there's this issue that in the testing phase, the organisms are only exposed to one chemical at a time. But in reality, any organism living in farmland is exposed to 10, 20, 30 different pesticides simultaneously, and nobody bothers to evaluate that. It's too complicated. Um, so if you look, if you take honey stores, for example, from honey beehives and test them for pesticides, they've got a whole range in there. Um, sometimes as many as 30 or 40 different pesticides in a single sample. Um, and we have really got no idea what, what that exposure to complicated cocktails of pesticides does to honeybees or, for that matter, to people. Have, have you done tests on uh, populations? Like, have you put down, you know, bumblebee hives beside farms to see what they're picking up into their systems or, or what's the status there yeah, yeah so um we've we've done exactly that we've put honeybee hives and bumblebee nests um in arable farmland and just for comparison we put some in uh, urban areas and then you collect the food the pollen stores the neck the the honey stores and screen them for pesticides and you just come up with this you know whole pile of different chemicals in there um uh, you know, not just the insecticides that you'd be most worried about, but things like herbicides and fungicides and so on. Um, this whole cocktail. Um, I, I mean, most of the studies that, that have looked to see whether there's an effect of the pesticide have focused on one pesticide at a time um, and trying to control exposure to that pesticide. So there have been, going back to the neonicotinoid saga, there have been... Um, big field trials which have tried to essentially put bee nests next to treated crops or untreated crops. It's often quite hard to, it's challenging because the controls often end up contaminated with pesticide, even though the field they were next to hadn't been treated. You can't tell the bees not to fly off to another field a mile, a mile away and feed on a treated crop. So unless you can control the whole landscape within a flight you know a bee's flight of a nest it's very hard to to, to how far does a bee fly uh, usually no more than a couple of miles but a, a two mile radius is a is a it's a big area to and that's just one replicate to do an experiment properly you obviously need a whole bunch of replicates that's pretty impressive given the size of a bee yeah it's one of the amazing things about them they can uh, sniff out food from a lot if they have to they'll go a long way to get it and and of course honeybees have this um advanced kind of recruitment mechanism the waggle dance that uh, enables them when they do find a, a good source of food that may be a, you know a long way from the hive to recruit all their nestmates to come and help them gather the food but bumblebees don't do that uh bumblebees have a slightly different and not quite so impressive uh, recruitment mechanism. They, so, and, and it's thought to relate to the, the, the habitat they evolved in in the first place. So um, honeybees originated in the tropics uh, and probably fed primarily on mass flowering trees in the forest. Um, and if one bee finds a, a, 
the tree in flower. It needs to recruit its, its inner. That's a huge resource that that one bee couldn't possibly um, exploit. So it recruits all its nestmates to the, to the tree. Bumblebees are temperate creatures that feed mainly on herbaceous plants. And, so, and what they do is if a bumblebee finds for a new flower that's really rewarding, she gets all excited and she flies back to the nest and she buzzes around on top of the nest in a kind of excited way. And the, the other workers come and sniff her and they pick up the scent of the flower that she's found and they go and look for their own patch. She doesn't tell them where to go. Um, but that may well be because herbaceous flowers tend to be in small patches. So she, she can probably exploit the patch she's found. But, you know, if she's just discovered, for example, that, I don't know, foxgloves, for want of a say, have just come into flower and they're a good nectar source, she basically tells the other workers, foxgloves are just in flower, go and find your own foxgloves. So there's no attempt to convey a direction or distances in the way that honeybees do, because the resources are probably more scattered. Or at least hmm. that's the theory. Whether it's actually true is kind of hard to say. It sounds good, and it's a good excuse for bumblebees having a more primitive communication mechanism than honeybees, or maybe they're just more dumb, who knows? Hmm. But uh, um, either way, it seems to work. Going back to, so earlier when we were talking about trucking around bees around the country, uh, it sort of just occurred to me, you know, if, if you take 100% of the bees in your country to one location and you happen to put down, what, what are they called, neonicotinoids? Yeah. If, if, you hap if you happen to spray <laughs> within two miles of where you've got 100% of your bees, do you have them, have they ever had mass? Uh, yeah, you know? yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, America has the worst kind of rates of honeybee hive loss. Um, of anywhere in the world. And they've had some years in particular, to, 2007 was the worst, uh, where I, if I remember rightly, they lost something like 40% of all the hives uh, in one, one go. Um, was that and, through this mechanism or? Well, no one, there's still, there's still argument about what caused those colonies to die. Was it pesticides? Was it disease? Was it um, parasites? And there's a whole, there's a really interesting kind of, confluence of factors so they're, they're all so people argue about you know which was the who who did it you know what was who was who who was holding the smoking gun um uh but actually it's 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 more complicated than that because these things there are kind of synergies so um one study found that the colonies that died tended to have higher loads of viruses than um than colonies that didn't die. And the viruses are mostly transmitted by the varroa mite, uh, which is a, a, para, a, a parasite from Asia, a non-native um, parasite that's been accidentally spread around the world. Um, and it, it's, a, it's, it's a vector on the bees. It sucks the hemolymph of the bees and it transmits virus from bee to bee. So you could blame the virus because the virus loads were higher in the colonies that died, or you could blame the varroa mite for transmitting the virus. But then it was discovered that exposure to some pesticides reduces the immune, impairs the immune system of bees, which allows viruses to replicate more rapidly. So it could be that the reason the viral load was higher was not just because they were being transmitted by the varroa mite, but also because the immune system had been damaged by the pesticide. So it's, it's complicated, basically. And um, that's why we're still arguing about what, what makes honeybee colonies die. Because at the end of the day, it's probably a, a, a whole bunch of factors. And it may not always be the same factors in, this, you know, in different places. Um, are we are there any locations that don't have this mite for, in Australia, for example, or in Africa or Yeah, there are. Um so Australia is 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 more or less the only place left in the world that doesn't have the varroa mite. Um but they uh, still have this these collapse. Well, there's uh, a lot of lot of debate about how healthy uh, Australian honeybees are. Um some people And I guess we don't have bumblebees, do we? Uh, not naturally. No, I don't think no. I don't think I'd ever seen one till. Uh, anyway, sorry, you you were saying my apologies. Yeah, yeah, no, bumblebees have been introduced to Tasmania actually, but uh, from Europe, but uh, <laughs> uh, but they're not in the rest of Australia. Um, no, this so it's sometimes basically because uh, it's said that Australian honeybees are healthier than honeybees in the rest of the world, 
Um, and that's proof that the varroa mite is the culprit when it comes to bee health issues. Um, but then some, some Australian beekeepers say, well, hang on a minute, all my hives died last year. You know, they don't seem so healthy to me. Um, so there's some debate about exactly uh, how healthy Australian bees are. Um, and also, of course, you know, nobody, nobody sensible is denying that varroa is a significant problem for honeybees. You know, they are. And so if you take away one of the pressures on honeybees, they probably are going to be healthier. That doesn't mean that that's the only factor that ever affects honeybees. Um, it's kind of false logic. I guess uh, since I asked about uh, are there locations without the mites, I guess also locations without pesticides at all. You mentioned that uh, also bees that are living in urban environments are uh, dying out. What's, what's leading to the pesticides there and the... Yeah, well, uh, so actually on the whole, um, bees do better in urban environments than in farmland. Um, mm -hmm. Bumblebees in particular, which, well, bumblebees are my kind of speciality. And uh, <laughs> we've done a lot, of <coughs> sorry, we've done experiments where we've put bumblebee nests into gardens and into farmland and looked to see how well they fared, how much they grew, how many queens they produced and so on. And they do much, much better in gardens than in the countryside. Uh, the, the, the natural nest density is higher in gardens than in the countryside. But they, they are still exposed to pesticides, um, but the concentrations tend to be lower. Um, and there are more flowers generally in, in, in gardens uh, and probably a much greater diversity of flowers, which is, is probably good for them as opposed to farmland where most of the time there are hardly any flowers and then there might be a crop that flowers for two weeks and they have a, a glut of food from that one crop. But it's not a very varied diet and there are patches of the year when there's nothing in flower at all. Whereas in gardens, you've got this relatively large mix. And even if, you know, not every garden, of course, is great for, um, for, for bees or butterflies or whatever, but, but bees, because they'll happily fly over the fence, they can always find a garden not too far away that has got a nice patch of flowers. Uh, and so they, see, they seem to do pretty well in, in urban areas, relatively speaking. Hmm. I heard also that, um, is this the case? I, I, I read somewhere that uh, these flowers that you buy at the farmer's market and uh, uh, various markets that have the uh, bee-friendly symbol on it, that the, these flowers are actually not friendly in general. Is this, is this uh, the case? So, yeah, um, basically. Um, so we, if you go to a garden centres in particular, you know, there's a big deal in the UK and I think in most of Europe. Um, they have these beautiful flowers on display, you know, tempting you to, to part with your hard-earned cash. And we had a bit of a suspicion that they were kind of too beautiful. You know, there was completely free of blemishes, very much like the fruit and vegetables in the supermarket. You know, no, nobody will buy an apple with a, with a little bit of a scab on it or whatever. And similarly, people want perfect flowers. Um, and a lot of them, as you say, uh, are marketed these days as being pollinator friendly, bee friendly. There's various different logos used, which basically flag up the plant species that are attractive to, to pollinators. And that, um, anyway, so we kind of thought, well, this is, you know, this is a bit suspicious. These plants look so perfect. I, and it, we knew they were mass reared in greenhouses. A lot of them were actually grown in the Netherlands and then exported all over Europe. Um, so we tested them for pesticides. This was three years ago. And uh, uh, we basically took the nectar and pollen out of plants that were being sold by big chain garden centers as bee friendly. And we screened them for pesticides. And, and you can guess exactly where we're going here. They were full of pesticides. 75% of them. Yeah, 75% of the plants we tested had insecticides in the pollen and nectar. And they're being sold as bee friendly, which is pretty outrageous. Legally, how did, I mean, is anyone going to be, if you sell something that's clearly not bee friendly with that marking on it, it, it can you get in trouble legally? Like, what? Well, nobody's taken it to court. I mean, I, I don't know, you know how that would fare. They, the garden centres would claim ignorance, probably, you know, because they didn't rear the plants. They bought them on good faith, they might say. Um, uh, but surely there's know. a certain level of due diligence, right? And also back to uh, the companies that are putting out these pesticides. Surely at the end of the day, when, it, when we find out that that's 
cause 70% of <laughs> uh, drop in uh, insect numbers, surely they should be held accountable. There's, there's yeah, no mechanisms in place. You'd like actually. to think, wouldn't you? But I mean, you know, you, you tell me, you t- try taking, uh, you know, Bayer or Syngenta to, to court um, for killing bees. Uh, good luck with that. You know, I mean, yeah, it'd be nice if that kind of thing happened, but uh, um, they would, you know, th- these are, Companies worth billions. They 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 would be pretty hard to pin something like that on them. They'd they'd have the best legal team in the world undermining your case. I'm sure. But so, is there any hope on the horizon? Is that what what's being done? Um, I mean, there are a lot at a kind of grassroots level. There's loads of nice stuff happening. You know, there are lots of projects um, you could look at. Um, you know providing habitat, trying to, trying to work out how to make farmland more pollinator and insect friendly. There's a huge interest at the moment in gardening and sort of rewilding of gardens, which is, I think is, has a lot of potential. It's not going to solve all of our problems by any means, but, uh, you know, just, just in the UK, um, there's 22 million gardens um, covering an area of it's nearly half a million hectares, which is a bigger area than all of the nature reserves in Britain. And lots of people, you know, those bee-friendly flowers, people want their gardens to be bee-friendly, pollinator-friendly, butterfly-friendly. They want more wildlife. Um, and, and so there's a kind of an appetite there. And, and also it's, it's, there's, there's been some campaigns in, in the last year or two to stop mowing of parks and road verges and roundabouts and plant them with wildflowers and this kind of thing. So to sort of, you know, green our, our cities and fill them with flowers. Um, and so I kind of think that's quite exciting, you know, it shows that people are changing, you know, that the, the tidiness that we used to demand um, is being slowly replaced by, a, you know, a desire to see, to see life. Um, and uh, I think that's pretty cool and could go some way towards stemming the decline of, of insects. But really, you know, we do need to, to do something about farming, which covers a much larger area of land than gardens ever will. Um, and that's, that's a tougher nut to crack. I take it uh, from your position that you're not in favor of, uh, <laughs> so I've read in certain articles, uh, people suggesting bringing in robotic bees or other tech, <laughs> tech solutions to this problem. I take it you're not, not in favor of. I'm not a big fan of the robot bee idea, no. I mean, <laughs> you know, it, it might be made to work. I, I mean, I, it seems nuts to me that, you know, we've got bees uh, that are really good at pollinating and have been doing it for 120 billion years. And there we are, you know, the obvious solution to bees declining is not to do something about that, but to spend a huge amount of money developing little tiny robots. But then you think of all the plastics and the energy and the metals and, uh, you know, the resources required. And then we're only ever going to pollinate high value crops with those. What about all the wildflowers? You know, 87% of all plant species on earth need insect pollinators. Um, so, you know, if, if the bees die out and we replace them with little robots that are just programmed to pollinate our crops, obviously nobody's going to pay them to go and pollinate wildflowers. Um, then, you know, every, the, the ecosystems would collapse, basically. And at the end of the day, if you think about it, I mean, a real bee, you know, it's, it's, it's self-replicating, it's carbon neutral, it's biodegradable. It seems perfect. You know, why do we really think we can do better? Um, it seems seems absolutely nuts to me, but you know, but people are doing it. Um, there are at least four labs around the world, uh, one in the UK that I know of, building robot bees right now. Um, Have so you been in contact with them? Uh, not directly, no. And I can see, I mean, like if I was a robotics engineer, it's a really cool problem. You know, can you do it? Can you make something that's that you know small enough? It's got a power pack or whatever it would require to to drive it along that can effectively pollinate flowers. That's a real challenge. It's a really interesting idea, I imagine. But when you think big picture, is this actually a sensible, viable way forward for humanity? Then it just seems completely crazy. There's also other groups that are going in the reverse direction where they're taking the body of an insect and trying to control it electronically because the insect itself, will insects are more advanced than the you know, mechanical devices we can make of a similar size. Um, so I, I, I doubt we're going to have success anytime soon in this direction. Yeah, I, absolutely. I've seen those, yeah, you sort of cockroach control devices, the way you, um, you get a little, um, like, like a control 
panel and you can make them run around and do what you want, which seems really sinister, to be honest. But uh, <laughs> I'm not entirely comfortable with sticking probes into a cockroach's brain and ordering it around. It doesn't seem quite right. But I can't really think that it's going to be all that useful either. Maybe I'm missing something. Yeah. So maybe, maybe uh, this would be a good point for me to ask you, uh, do you have, <laughs> so when you look down the line in, in uh, you know, another 20 or 30 years, is there some dream scenario that you can see unfolding uh, with regards to this? Well, so yeah, there are. So I would, I mean, this is never going to happen, but you know, well, some bits might. The, the garden thing, I think it'd be great if we kind of, rewilded our cities and towns and invited nature in to live with us had you know trees and flowers and greenery and bees and butterflies everywhere no pesticides loads of flowers so kids could grow up you know the sight and sound of bees and butterflies all around them it'd be brilliant and it's, and there's not really any downside to that um you know you're not sacrificing crop production or anything else just sacrificing tidiness um uh, so that's an easy one um but when it comes to the rest of the planet and I'm, I'm a big fan of, of um, Ed Wilson's half earth you know he said we should we should set aside half the earth for nature and and if you actually look at it we could you know to come back to the kind of nuts and bolts of, the, of farming at the end of the day 80% of the world's farmland is is used to produce meat and dairy um, which provides about 8% of our calories so you know just just from that fact alone if we cut massively cut down on meat production, you could set, you free up huge areas of land. An area of land, I mean, very comfortably the size of North America and probably considerably bigger. Imagine, you know, rewilding on that scale. It would just be amazing. Um, so, you know, we could, if we, if we were somehow able to redesign our food production system and get everyone to agree to do this, then, you know, we could save, we could, we could save the planet comfortably. We could, we could ensure that, you know, we lived on a, generations to come lived on a planet that was teeming with biodiversity. That's, that's, you know, that's the goal, I guess. That's, that's the dream. Um, but I'm, I'm rather less um, positive that we can actually achieve that one. As someone who's an entomologist and who loves insects, would you be happy seeing us replace part of our meat production with eating insects? Yeah, if it works. Uh, I mean, there are some arguments for um, uh, eating insects. I mean, they're certainly, if you compare them to a chicken or a cow, they're much more efficient at turning plant material into more nutritious animal material. Um, and they will eat things that are not much good for anything else, some of them. Um, so I'd have no problem at all. But my, the only the two sort of slight caveats. One is I've yet to taste anything made from insects that I really <laughs> enjoyed, you know, apart from maybe chocolate covered ants, but I think that was the chocolate really. Um, uh, and the other one is that um, generally speaking, it just makes more sense to eat the plant material direct if we can, um, you know, that, that growing plants to feed to animals, even insects, is going to be less efficient than growing plants that can be consumed direct by people if you just want to feed people with minimal area of land. Um, but if you're, if you're talking about areas where you can't really grow anything much that's edible directly for people, but you might be able to grow something that was edible for grasshoppers, then why not? One thing that I completely forgot to ask you about is <laughs> about halfway through the conversation, I, uh, you mentioned that there have now been, there's been a monitorium or something on, on these, uh, you call ne them neonicotinoids. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So basically they were, um, they, the initial concern was over their use on crops that flowered and bees visited and there was clear evidence that that was killing bees. So they banned them, the European Union banned their use on flowering crops in 2013. But then when it became clear that they were getting into wildflowers and hedgerow flowers and bees were being exposed to them even when they weren't used on flowering crops, they were, they were all uses more or less were banned in 2018. Um, it's not quite as simple as that, but essentially they're banned in, in Europe. But the rest of the world is carrying on using them, you know, regardless. And... It's kind of, I mean, it's, it's an interesting example of how regulators can look at exactly the same set of data and draw completely different conclusions. You know, in 
the the US regulators say they're safe, it's completely fine. Uh, whereas EFSA, which was um, produced the report that the European Union acted on, um, EFSA decided, you know, their conclusions were that they pose an unacceptable risk to bees, was how they put it. And do they, do they block imports from countries that are still using these pesticides? Oh, no, we don't do anything that sensible. No, we, I mean, we, we happily import tons. Any, <laughs> any, everywhere outside of Europe uses neonicotinoids. We wouldn't be able to import any food to Europe at all if we, uh, if we did that. I guess then what happens is you end up pricing your local farmers out of the market because now they're competing against people who are yeah, and that's the danger. And you're exporting your environmental footprint to, to other countries by importing their produce grown in more damaging ways. It's, um, it's yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's a mess and quite illogical, really. So what's, what's been the outcome then? In, since that moratorium has been put in place, are we seeing uh, lower crop yields? Are we, what, what, what's... The, 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 there doesn't seem to be any Europe-wide change in crop yield at all, which is quite interesting. There have been some local pest outbreaks that farmers have blamed on, on not being able to use the chemicals. Um, and that may or may not be true. It's an easy thing to, to blame it on. Um, but if you look overall at the European statistics for crop production, you know, there's year-to-year -year variation due to the weather and so on. Um, but for most crops, we've had record yields since the moratorium came into effect. So we certainly seem able to grow crops pretty well without them. I guess uh, it, it'd be hard to actually, I mean, if you've done significant damage to the insect population, then it might take a couple of years to actually determine whether uh, the moratorium is successful. No? I, well, yes, and um, they're, still, they're still in the soil and they will be for four or five years probably. And so this successive crops um, grown in those soils contain them. Um, so it'll take a, quite a long time before you could really begin to um, say anything. And, and also, of course, in, you know, they're being replaced by other chemicals, which we'll probably find in 25 years time, um, are just as bad as the things that they replaced. So, you know, <laughs> it sounds like I'm a bit of a cynic and I am uh, when it comes to this, this aspect of things, you know, um, the pesticide in industry is pretty savvy. They they knew neonics were going to be banned. There was a you know the the, fr the signs were on the wall fifteen years before the ban actually came, and they had plenty. So they had plenty of time to prepare, and they had new chemicals in the wings waiting to roll out. Um, some of them look suspiciously similar to neonicotinoids, but they're called other chemicals because it obviously wouldn't be great marketing to call them neonicotinoids. Um, but, you know, some of them are just as poisonous, weight for weight. Some of them seem to be persistent. They're systemic, so they're getting into, you know, nectar and pollen and so on. Um, but it, we just, you know, we just keep making the same mistakes over and over again. And the regulatory system hasn't really changed. Um, there was an attempt to, in Europe to, um, to beef up the, the safety testing on new agrochemicals to ensure that they were tested that sublethal effects were included and effects on species other than just honeybees were included. Um, but it was blocked by the agrochemical industry. Uh, so the protocols were all developed and are sitting there and have been since 2013, um, but none of them have ever been used. So the system that allowed neonicotinoids onto the market in, in the mid nineties is, is still in place. So that we've got no reason at all to believe that we're not gonna make the same mistakes again. I guess it's quite useful for people who want to push uh, these pesticides that they have multivariate. I mean, there's multiple reasons you mentioned that the mites, for example, so that, that's, it's, it's very useful that you can't precisely pin down, uh, pinpoint the problem. Uh, absolutely. And they, they, you know, there's, there's a whole toolkit that, I mean, you know, you can see the same um, uh, strategies used by the tobacco industry in the late 20th century. You know, you, you, you try and dispute any evidence that shows harm done by your chemicals. You provide counter evidence. You have your own scientists come up with studies that seem to show that they're harmless. You, you point the finger at other things. You say it's the varroa mite. That's the real problem. Um, and then you fund studies which always find it's the varroa mite. 
um, and so on. So you just basically create doubt and confusion. Um, and it makes it really easy for politicians to do nothing because they can say, well, there's no clear consensus. Actually, usually there is amongst the people who aren't paid by the agrochemical industry. But uh, um, yeah, it's frustrating. Uh, this, I, I, I wanted to... Um, uh, find some nice way of, of wrapping up this story, but the, the story you've sold is a little bit depressing. Um, can we, can we, can I ask you some unrelated, but uh, interesting questions about <laughs> insects that I'm just curious about? Far away. Um, so I've read in various places that insects have some restriction on how large they can grow because of the oxygen content in the atmosphere. Is this the case? Is there some limit to uh, what we can see today? I, it's not really my area, insect physiology, but as I understand it, there is truth in that. That, um, uh, you know, that, that most insects rely on diffusion of oxygen to get to their tissues. And obviously there's a limit to how fast that can happen. But my, my slight, and, and it's certainly true that when oxygen concentrations were higher in the Carboniferous, there were bigger insects, you know, famously, dragonflies with 60 centimeter wingspans, which would have been pretty damn cool. Um, but, um, but there were also no other flying creatures to compete with them. So it was kind of an empty niche they were occupying at the time. You know, there were no birds, there were no pterodactyls back then. Um, so maybe, you know, they, they might have been relatively slow and, and wouldn't be able to, to cope in the modern world at that size. But the, my, my slight issue with this whole theory about oxygen diffusion is that um, there are insects with pumped uh, respiration essentially um, most bigger insects um, inflate and deflate their abdomen when they need to when they're active uh, bumblebees do it um, locusts do it and they pump air in and out of their trachea so they're actually their gases exchange system isn't so different to ours in which case why can't they get bigger um, I think it's it's Another theory is that it relates to the having an external skeleton, um, that that's, that's fine when you're small, but the, the width, because your weight increases as the, uh, as the cube of your length, but the mm -hmm. strength of your, the cross-sectional area of your external skeleton increases as a square. You basically have to have a disproportionately thicker and thicker external skeleton to hold yourself up as you get bigger. And it just reaches a point where they're all armor and no insides. Um, and I guess the like lobsters and, and uh, large creatures like that are all underwater where they're yeah, to be supported. They're supported anyway. Yeah. 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 So <laughs> another question that I, um, sorry, these are the embarrassing questions I always wanted to ask when I was a little kid that <laughs> I, I've never met an entomologist. So I have to, um, I haven't lived. I haven't lived. <laughs> um, so, uh, smartest insect you, you mentioned um bumblebees uh, is there a, a smartest insect or is there a um i struggle i'm just trying to think um of anything that i would um think that could outsmart a bumblebee um uh, i can't i i mean if i you know in terms of brain size, literal, absolute brain size uh, bumblebees have the largest brain of any insect that i know of um, and I mean, it's obviously very difficult to, you know, it's hard enough to measure intelligence in humans, let alone compare intelligence across species of insect. But uh, um, uh, I'd, I'd certainly think bumblebees have to be a top contender for me. That's why I got interested in the first place, really. Um, so final uh, question. <laughs> how, how do you... It, how do I name an insect? If I, if I find a, a novel species, you know, how, how, how does that process uh, take place? I, I've never done it. I, I'm not a taxonomist. Uh, it's a very specialized job. I mean, the, and the, real, the real challenge, you know, it's, easy, it's really easy to find a, to catch an insect that's new to science. You go to, you know, Colombia or Brazil or Ghana or somewhere and go to the wildest forest you can find and flap around with a net and it's a pretty good chance you'll have some new species to science there. But it's knowing that there are new species to science. You know, that particular fly or whatever it is, to establish that it's not one of the 10,000 similar species that have already been described. That's the real 
trick. So basically, you need you need you need to take your insect to the specialist in the world, if there is one, in that particular family of whatever it might be, and persuade them to spend days staring down a microscope um, to, to to ascertain whether or not it's it's new or just one of the one of the ones that's already been described. So it's really slow work, which is why I mean it's kind of a, a really cool thing actually that um, you know we, we've. So far on Earth, we've named about one and a half million species of animal and plant, of which about 1.1 million are insects of one type or another. So we've named a lot, but there are pretty reasonable estimates suggesting that there's probably 5 million species on this planet, and there could be twice that, um, <laughs> most of them insects. So there's the majority we haven't even named yet. And that's, you know, isn't that kind of cool and exciting? You know, we just don't know what's out there. I mean, probably most of them would be quite similar to ones we have named, you know, it's unlikely to be really dramatically weird looking ones because we'd have seen them by now. But nonetheless, you know, the fact that there's so much of life on our crowded planet is, has yet to be described is, is pretty cool, I think.